Hey y'all, it's Kelsey. How have you been staying cool? We're definitely experiencing the pains of the climate crisis here in Kansas City with severe heat this week. Storms have been wiping out power, displacing plants and animals. And here at our house, we've been trying all kinds of ways to keep our bodies and the bodies of our dog and chickens cool. There are inflatable baby pools. There are spots in the shade. There are halved watermelons to peck at. There's a lot of liquid IV going down, popsicles and ice cubes in many shapes and cool showers and playing with the hose. I'd love to hear about how you're managing to take care and stay cool to keep going through these slow, sticky days. Speaking of home, today's episode is a coming home, literally. Because today I finally convinced my partner Iman El Sadin to come onto Cool Queers doing cool shit and share their tales of being a queer as an abortion provider, as a tennis player, and as a poker aficionado. They have lots of hobbies, they have a deep love of queer media, and lots of perspectives on the world, and it was a lot of fun to have a more intimate discussion for the podcast with them. Dr. Iman al is an OBGYN and abortion provider and serves as the chief medical officer of Planned Parenthood Great Plains. They did their medical training in Chicago, where they grew up, moved to Kansas City a few years back after traveling here for years as a fly-in abortion provider. They've loved finding community here at home poker games and in their very serious adult tennis. You may hear some dog barks and maybe some pauses throughout this episode because unlike previous episodes, we did get to record this in the same house. We took to different floors. It was chaos. The dog didn't know what was going on, but it's a good conversation nonetheless. All right, let's dig in. Hi. Hi. <clears throat> Thanks so much for joining me on my cute little podcast that I make in this house that we live together. Thank you for finally having me. <laughs> <laughs> so Iman is a lot of things and and one of them is my partner. But we're going to dig into like a lot of the other things that Iman is today too, including a very cool queer um, so Iman, I'm going to kick us off <laughs> same question that I ask every guest who joins the show. So you're not getting special treatment. That's too bad. <laughs> the first question is all about queerness as a concept and actually queerness is a verb because I truly believe that queerness is not just an adjective or a noun, but something that really we can live through queering as a verb. So I'd love to hear what you're queering in your life right now. I am queering, well, I'm queering a lot of things at all times. So one of the things that I really like to think that I'm queering is the Kansas City um, adult female tennis scene. Yes. I <laughs> play tennis with a lot of blonde women who are lovely and I am their token queer and I take on this job and responsibility very seriously and I educate them about queerness and queer things to the best of my abilities, which is not perfect. Um, so I am always queering tennis every time I show up to play tennis in something that is not a two-piece matching tennis skirt outfit. That's right. 
You know, there are so many things you could have said just now, and you still surprised me. I did not expect <laughs> you to say that you are queer in tennis. <laughs> I know, because tennis is already so queer, right? Like, because, like, you know, Billie Jean King, she's a queer. Martina Navratilova, I think she's a queer. Um, yeah, there's already so many queers, and tennis is, you know, historically very queer, but because tennis is also Republican, it is not queer on a level of, you know, social everyday tennis in your, uh, your favorite American city. Well, there's something interesting to dig into here. That's like really particular about sport, which is the gendered binary of it all. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, you participate in something where there literally are ladies teams and men's teams. (laughs) It's not even men and women. It's men and ladies. I mean, it's, it's technically men and women, but everyone refers to it as ladies. <laughs> and because tennis is also very formal. So ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Is there gentlemen's tennis? Well, yeah. I mean, if you call something ladies tennis, then of course the converse is that there's gentlemen's tennis. <laughs> is there a, a bow tie involved? Um I've never seen someone play tennis in a bow tie but I've definitely seen a lot of tennis spectators in bow ties so sort of okay we've really digressed (laughs) here (laughs) so this season on this podcast we're coming to an end I'm gonna do these 10 episodes season one's gonna be over but I've learned a lot while Mm -hmm. putting this podcast together and putting these 10 episodes together um thank you for being such uh oh no I was just saying that I learned a lot like when I was listening to it, not because of your struggles putting it together. <laughs> so something that I've come to believe through this process is that <clears throat> we really can learn so much from folks if we hear about the pieces that grew them, that fostered them, and that challenged them. And you happen to be one of the few abortion providers taking care of people in our region of the country who need abortions. And it's a really big job dare I say a kind of lonely job because there aren't a lot of folks that are like doing your same work day to day and it's a hectic job with emphasis on the heck Mm -hmm. so can you share a little bit about moments from your growing up or your evolution that led you to this moment where you're doing this work and like Mm -hmm. why you feel like you as an individual Iman can do this right now can do this is a very very strong statement um it am doing it sort of is like sort of how I'm thinking of it at this moment um doing the best I can really is how I'm thinking of it at this moment um so my growing up I grew up in an environment that was very conflict heavy um it was a verbally and sometimes physically abusive environment um I was all alone as an only child, um, which I think has maybe prepared me for this moment in my life as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But coming out of conflict, it is uh, my, and you and I have talked about this a lot, but it is like my comfort zone to like be in a situation that is unstable, to be in a situation that is heavy in conflict. Is that now is that like good or healthy that that is like my wheelhouse and like where I feel the most like oh this is so normal (laughs) um 
no, probably not, but <laughs> I'm, I'm working through that separately. <laughs> um, and I sort of came to be from this like environment that I just described. And also as a queer person who has been like visibly queer most of their life and also whose family was not accepting of their queerness, gayness, being a lesbian, whatever, um, growing up, you know, that to me taught me that, well, let me just say, let me just go back. So that sort of concept of having people not accept me, it could have gone two ways for me. I, I could have changed who I was and like fit in more and, and been the person that everyone around me wanted me to be and thought I should be. But for some reason, I, that just didn't work for me. Why? And I don't know. I have like no tolerance for bullshit and I've had no tolerance for bullshit since I was like a child um I just don't I just have really strongly felt like my whole life that like my who I am and like what I'm about and that kind of thing is not up for discussion and it's not for anyone else to say and I don't know I honestly don't know where that comes from probably from my like terribly angry father who is also the same way but I'm trying to take that and use it for good um, <laughs> rather than use it for evil like I think he did um, and continues to do so yeah I've always had this innate belief that like I am a person who is correct about who they are and is correct about their actions and you know sometimes it gets me into trouble and sometimes most of the time it has worked out in my favor where I've been able to sort of go against everyone else's wishes for me and sort of elbow my way into this world that I've created for myself and this person that I have become and that has been very difficult but also very very rewarding and it has allowed me to continue to live a life that I love and and have worked really hard for. And because of these origins, let me get back to the actual question. We've like really <laughs> digressed here again. Um, <laughs> because of this origin of who I am, I have sort of translated that into my work in abortion. I really, truly, strongly believe that no other person knows the right thing for an another person so I don't know what's best for you you don't know what's best for me I don't know what's best for any patient and the, the patients are the people that know their own lives they know their mm -hmm. own bodies they are allowed and encouraged to live the li live the lives that they want and it is an honor every single day to be able to accommodate people in living the lives that they imagine for themselves mm. and that is something that I believe to my core and will always be willing to fight for, um, for myself and others, you know, as long as I, as long as I have the ability to do that. I love that. Oh, thank you, baby. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think I want to zoom back a little bit because you said something that I think is worth drawing attention to because you said that, you know, chaos and uncertainty and like living in a complex state of things is kind of your comfort zone. And you made a judgment call there. You're like, I don't know if that's good or bad. Like, I think it's really important to name that none of us have control over the shit that we're dealt in life. Right. And sometimes mm -hmm. it's, it's a big pile of golden shit and sometimes it's actual <laughs> shit. <laughs> yeah. 
and we get to take from it what we want and we get to discard what we don't want. And I think that you're a really awesome example of someone who's like been dealt. <laughs> I'm about to make a card pun and I'm already regretting it because my next question's about poker, but <laughs> you've been dealt <laughs> you've been dealt a kind of mixed hand, you know? Like yeah, you've had all yeah, of it's these like shit with like gold flecks in it. <laughs> yeah, like some some gold foil, some edible gold, baby. We're eating the gold, we're turning it into shit. Right. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that that's just a really important example and lesson of of like kind of submitting to the circumstances that life offer us and still being able to like pave our own paths along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've worked really hard to now be in this position where you're a doctor. You're not just any kind of doctor. You're a kind of doctor that's doing work that no one wants to do. You're doing it in a place where no one wants you to be doing it. Um, and yeah, it's like, like too much, you know, it's like, maybe I took it a little too far, you know, <laughs> I, it's just, it's important and it's a lot and it can be both of those things at yeah. the same time. Yeah. So lots of people know because of your public facing work, you, you do some media interviews about the abortion work that you do. And also me being very boastful on my own social media that you are an abortion provider <laughs> But what some people might not know about you is that you're also an avid, serious, competitive <laughs> poker player. Yeah. So poker is traditionally a pretty white male-dominated space, a cis-het male-dominated space. So can you tell me a little bit about why the heck poker? That's like question number one. Why poker? And question number two, what is it like to be a visibly queer person at the poker table? Yeah, I feel like the adjectives you use to describe how I how I feel about poker, how I how I take poker can be used to describe any <laughs> hobby that I have in my life. I take it very seriously. Like all of a sudden I'm like a professional. Um Hashtag like the day Gemma. after I the day after I start something, it's like I know literally everything about it. Like we've been joking that I have, I'm developing an orange theory addiction. Cause like, I can't just like go to orange theory once casually. Like I now have to become like one of the people that's like in the call. <laughs> um, I have always loved playing cards. I didn't play too many cards growing up. I think my dad and I would play rummy sometimes. Um, I, I love cards. I just love to play all card games. I um, find them all so interesting I love cribbage I love euchre I love any other trick-taking games I really do want to learn bridge although I know we had to put our bridge partnership on hold due to some um teacher issues listen (laughs) Um, she was too stern to be a conducive (laughs) learning environment for me a softy feeler (laughs) yeah yeah um yeah we'll have to find a softy feeler bridge teacher anyways so I just love all cards I love that it is a way to interact with people that is both social and also a game which is competitive you know as I as I said previously I take most things too seriously (laughs) so um poker is it's a really interesting game I I like to play a lot of different forms of poker mostly I play no limit hold'em when I think about why I like poker so much, I think there's a few answers. First of all, I'm an Arab and Arabs love gambling, <laughs> um, <laughs> without a doubt. There's an element in poker, which I, I recently heard someone on a different podcast, a poker podcast, not a queer podcast, um, put into 
words. Uh, it was Brendan Schiller on the Thinking Poker podcast and the Gloria Jackson episode, who I'm like totally fangirling over right now. She's a black female poker player who is outstanding. Um, but he pointed out something that I think is really, really important. And I and I think I tend to get into things and then think about why I like them later, mm. as opposed to kind of evaluating why I like something before I do it. You pay, everyone pays the same amount. You get the same amount of chips when you buy in and everyone sits at the same table and you get the same amount of hands and everyone pays the antes, everyone pays the blinds, everyone gets a chance to be the dealer. It is a place in pseudo sport because poker is not really a sport, <laughs> but it is a place in sport where, or pseudo sport where everyone starts off equally. And there are so few places in our world and so few things in our world where people literally actually start off equally um, that it's very intriguing to me, that concept. And it's made me love poker even more since he kind of, since I heard him put that into words. Um, and, and that has made me kind of realize why I do like poker. One of the reasons is because of that everyone starts out from the same place in tournament poker. And that is a pretty interesting concept and very untrue in a lot of different places and a lot of different other games. Um, the other thing about poker is that it's, it's truly, truly one of my passions to upset conservative old white men. <laughs> and there are like so many of those people like all over every poker tournament and casino. And, and like, that is really speaking to me <laughs> like to be able to outplay those people to embarrass them <laughs> um that is one of my passions um and that kind of ties into looking very queer um and sort of androgynous at the poker table because nothing confuses old men more than someone who isn't really looking like a boy or girl um or someone who might they might think is a boy and then talks and they're like wait a second is that a girl um I get called sir constantly um which doesn't bother me it's probably my preferred pronoun if I even had a preferred pronoun <laughs> um <laughs> I'm like finally the respect I deserve Jesus um <laughs> It's really, really confusing for people. People really don't know what to make of me. And I honestly think that that probably helps me in the world of poker. Um, I think when people see women or people that are not men, they automatically assume that they're worse at poker and are weak players. And we know from experience and our own lives and watching a lot of female poker players play and following their careers that that's just simply not true um i would rather never play in a ladies poker event i think women are generally better players than men and i think being a being a queer person in poker is just really it's really confusing and hard for people to swallow and like if people are thinking about like my gender instead of actually playing good poker Poker, like that is definitely amazing like please do continue to think about my gender like please be so confused about my gender that you do something terrible with your cards like <laughs> like please like think that I'm weak because you I'm not like a 45 year old white man like I that is something that I am like very attuned to and like a shark in the water and I live for that 
I want to queer poker next. Like, I do not think that there, no offense to the queer poker players out there. I do not think that there is any media or a pot or a vlog or anything that's like specifically talking about queer poker. And I'm contemplating making that, which like with what time Iman, but, (laughs) um, you know, I, I think that's definitely a place that I could go do queerness on next. (laughs) I had so many laughs in the background to that response, but just to let listeners know, we're currently in a very bizarre setup in our house where I am in our bedroom sitting on the floor and Iman is downstairs at their desk and the dog is very (laughs) confused and she has been barking a lot in the background. So I've been trying to mute myself, but just to say... Normally, I would have inserted my commentary throughout. I think that this explanation about poker being socialist and the kind of equitableness of poker, that when no matter what your body is, no matter how it works, no matter how it looks, no matter what your identities are, no matter how politicized your identities have become in our society, that when you sit down at that table in a tournament, you truly are all the same. Like, you could yeah. have bags over your heads and <laughs> <laughs> there's there's nothing about who paper you bags are. not plastic bags like not a death situation <laughs> i was going for like anonymity just to be clear right, right. yeah like a paper bag with the cut out eye holes <laughs> yes, exactly <laughs> okay yes the paper bag with the cut out eye holes very cute i love that image in my head everyone around the table looking like a bag but what I I think that this explanation and this definition really helped me kind of come to terms with some of my discomfort with the game as well, because I definitely have lumped poker in to just like gambling at large, like big G gambling, which I have my own familial trauma about. But I love that this has now become this kind of like socially politicized experiment almost of like what happens when we put very different kinds of people around a table to play a game together where their outside lives don't fucking matter when they come and sit down at that table. Um, And it's been really cool to now apply that lens as I watch you approach your tournament poker career. I don't know. It's something that like really opened up a new channel of understanding for me. So I'm really glad that you brought that up because it's really fascinating. Yeah. And I'm thankful that I listened to that podcast with those people that, that guy that said that Brendan Schiller, because like, I didn't even really ever think of that. Like, and now that I also, now that I also am thinking about it that way, it makes me love it even more, which I'm sure dismays you to hear (laughs) because I already loved it so much. (laughs) But um, now I'm like, yeah, it's political. See, (laughs) it's good for everyone. (laughs) Um, but like I have been listening to a lot of Thinking Poker podcast is a podcast I've listened to a very, very long time. I've been listening to a lot of their episodes recently because they have really been focusing on women of color poker players, which is like such a small, tiny, minuscule piece of the poker pie. And I hate that so much. And, and um, these women that play, they have these amazing backstories they have these amazing poker stories they're amazing players and they 
are some of the best players in the world, probably. Um, and they've just like never been highlighted in this way. And I think it's so amazing. And that has really also inspired me to continue to stick with poker and even think about queering poker in that way, because like visibility totally matters. And we all know this for sure. And it matters in all of our spaces. And it matters, especially in a space where there's like tons of money to be won from these old conservative white men. Like we need to all get in there queers. Like we need to get in there and we need to learn poker and we need to go play and we need to win. <laughs> and in fact, one of the first things you made for me when we were first crushing on each other was a lesbian media 101 syllabus that a few years later I am still working through because it was so dense with rich dyke content. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But this was just, I think an example of how deeply invested you are in looking for representation in queer media. So that's my question. Like, what does queer community, either in person or an extension of that in the media, mean to you? You know, I was lonely when I was growing up. I didn't have one in the morning and I would stop at the gas station and I would get an ice cold root beer, which was like a treat with a capital T. <laughs> and I would get home and in my room, I had a very small TV and a VHS player. And I, I lived sort of close to the gay blockbuster in Chicago and the gay blockbuster was in Boys Town and they had, um, VHS tapes. Okay. There was a gay section. Okay. And the gay section was like half of one tiny shelf <laughs> and the lesbian section was like one third of that gay section <laughs> and awesome. I would either it was actually like amazing because like that was like my only access to those things before Netflix would send DVDs to your house and I was so lucky because I like lived not I didn't have to drive to this blockbuster because I didn't have the ability to drive at this age I could rollerblade there <laughs> and so Occasionally they would have a sale of their extra VHS tapes and I had bought um, Desert Hearts and But I'm a Cheerleader. And so with my ice cold root beer, I would go to my room and I would watch But I'm a Cheerleader um, or Desert Hearts, like whatever I was feeling that night. And then I would go to bed at like 4.30 in the morning after drinking my root beer and watching that movie that I already knew back and forth, all the, all the words to all the songs that played um the soundtrack of but i'm a cheerleader is like still some of my favorite music ever um and i just have watched that movie probably a hundred times i mean this was all these were like the people that i knew that were like me you know yeah. and even though it's like this like farce of a movie where <laughs> you know like this like queer anti-queer conversion camp like and it's like this like I mean it's so well designed like the colors the outfits like it's so visually pleasing as well that I would just I I have memorized every inch of that movie I love it so much and same with Desert Hearts um yeah I mean those are my those are my friends growing up you know that's what I that's what I did and then I remember Am I talking too much should I stop talking no <laughs> okay <great. laughs> okay and then I remember Okay, Queer as Folk, okay? This yes. is when I was in high school. Um, so I was watching Queer as Folk, it ended, and then I remember that they played a teaser or a trailer 
for the L word after that, because it was also on Showtime. Ooh. And it was like Bette Porter with her fucking hair and her business suit driving her sob. And she had the fucking Motorola, like fucking chunky flip phone. And then there was like Tina, who was from another gay movie from before. And then that was like Shane. It was like Shane is Brian Kinney now. And like, I want to be her now. And like, that's more like me because I'm a girl. And and like, <laughs> it was like, I almost fell out of my chair that I was <laughs> hiding watching this in in the basement. Like, I was like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> and so, um. Yeah, I like got, you know, I like got more, got more media friends, like as things went on, because like, of course, like as time goes on and society progresses to being more liberated or liberal in this case, um, there's more, there's more queer media to consume. And now it's like, there is so much like I have really fallen behind and I create, I still crave those like old school things that remind me of my youth. And then do you want me to tell another story? (laughs) Sure. Okay, you can cut it out. <laughs> um, okay, Law and Order SVU. Okay, like there was a hot ADA. Her name was Alex Cabot. She was blonde and she had glasses. And she was really the best ADA they had, in my opinion. Um, she knew the law. She was like pretty stern, which was so hot. But also her and Olivia Benson had a very interesting friendship. Now, I... I, as a queer, was like, oh, they're in love. Because, <laughs> like, I think everyone's in love. <laughs> and then I went on my gateway computer with my dial-up internet, and I was, like, on the internet looking, and I discovered fan fiction, which is, like, amazing, because fan fiction is, like, everyone is watching the same thing on TV, and you are, like, watch, and I'm, like, watching Law and Order SVU, and I'm like, these two are in love. Like, it's so obvious to me. And then I'm like, I must be the only person that feels that way. Nope. Lo and behold, there's thousands of people <laughs> online writing literal novellas about their love. And like, I am consuming it at like a ravenous rate. Like I cannot leave the gateway computer. My eyes are glued. <laughs> I am like, it is sexy. It is dramatic. And like, it is like everything anyone could ever want that is like a queer person watching this like queer baiting basically happen on tv like fan fiction makes your dreams come true <laughs> a commercial for fan fiction yes it really is. Like, i am like such a i am such a fan of fan fiction i'm a fan fan fiction <laughs> can, I, can i ask you to tell one more story that i'm privileged yeah. to know can yeah. you also talk about I know that maybe Juliana Margulies wasn't your oh my god queer I, friend yeah. on TV but can you just talk about what yes. she means for me as a queer okay absolutely so my parents were in the medical field as well and ER came out in 1994 I believe you're gonna have to fact check that it was the mid early to mid 90s I think it was 1994 anyways so I'm like seven years old six or seven and the first episode of ER and Juliana Margulies shows up. George Clooney's there. So everyone's like distracted by George Clooney. Like, fuck George Clooney. Who fucking cares? He looks like a dad. Like, no, thank you. <laughs> Juliana Margulies shows up. Her hair is curly. She's so beautiful. She's so caring. She's a nurse, you know? Like, my mom's a nurse. I'm just like, I looked at Juliana Margulies and I was like, I want you to put me and tuck me into bed and give me a kiss every <laughs> single night. <laughs> Like, I want you to be my mom. 
But now I look back on that and I realize, first of all, I do have a mommy complex. Everybody knows it. But second of all, like I realize, like that Juliana Margulies in ER in the first episode is like my first love at first sight. Like I was in love with her. (laughs) Juliana Margulies is your root. (laughs) She's my root. Yes. And, and yeah, like I, I, yes. I love her. And I watched her in The Good Wife and I was obsessed with her. I, I was like, like, I'm an adult. You're an adult. Like, we should be together. Juliana Margulies, like, you're a lawyer. I love the law. I fancy myself a lawyer sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I, yes, Juliana Margulies, special place in my heart. Very much so. <laughs> I love hearing about all of this from this new perspective. You used a phrase that I've never heard you use before, which is that these movies and these queer people and these queer plot lines in these movies were your friends. And it made me think about the fact that, you know, one of the kind of milestones that people when they're dating have is that you end up introducing your new partner or your new love interest to your friends that you have in your life. And that's like oftentimes a big step in a relationship. And this is making so much sense to me because while I love the people that you've introduced me to who have changed my life, you have real life friends who are queer and not queer who are amazing. Some of the first things that you introduced me to as well was these movies. And I I like have such fond memories of very early on in our relationship, literally building a fort and watching, but I'm a cheerleader, like having a date night where we watched desert hearts and so it's, I don't know, really lovely to just think about that in a new way. Yes, that is that is also an interesting thing that I've never thought of. I'm like, I don't have any real friends, but here are no, my friends. <laughs> you also have real friends. Um, okay, so we just time traveled a lot, which I love. We were in your childhood basement. We were at your first job. We were developing your mommy complex. We were... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> learning about the card games you played growing up. And now I'm going to like add all of those pieces together because that's what gets us to the now that we're in, in this moment in life where you and I are adult queers still trying to figure out some baby stuff, but like mm-hmm. trying to be adults <laughs> mm-hmm. living in the same house in Kansas City, Missouri, present day, 2023. What a mm-hmm. doozy. <laughs> yeah wow hard times <laughs> so, <laughs> not not living in the same house being in 2023 I'm sorry I need to like correct that for everyone so something I've learned a lot about because of queerness is the absolute fuckery of how non-linear life actually is right like yeah in straight white America we're told that life's gonna follow a pretty straight path like you're born, you go to school, then you go to college, then you get a job, then you meet the love of your life. Ideally, in America world, someone that is the opposite gender of you. Someone someone that looks like your sibling that is the opposite gender of you. Yes. Make people okay. confused. Make <laughs> yes. people think that you're siblings, boy-girl siblings. <laughs> then you get married, then you have 2.5 babies, then you retire with your perfect 401k, and then you die and 
no one talks about it when you die because death is too scary and we have to pretend like it's never going to happen. Right. So that's not actually how it works. It ends up. And well, you for and some I, people it is. <laughs> there's always some like mess works and drama is, and Works tea. is a strong word, right? Like for some people, that is the trajectory of their life. Sure. Whether it works or not is up for debate. <laughs> But it ends up queer people don't follow that path. Right. And I've been learning that a little bit in reverse as someone who's like a little bit later to living an out gay life. Mm -hmm. And I am so proud to be your person and to be witnessing you grow and change and find new ways of being through this nonlinearness. And what the fans want to know is what is it like to be with Kelsey, host of Cool Queers Doing Cool Shit? (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. My real question is... (laughs) It's amazing. (laughs) My real question is that we've seen a lot of life now, right? Like you just turned 36. I'm 31 and a half as of three days ago. (laughs) And (laughs) did I miss a present situation? (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. And we've both been engaged or married to other people. But now Mm -hmm. we're here in Kansas City where neither of us grew up. We have some like embryos on ice Mm -hmm. and we still have a lot of life to figure out. So as we are like mushing the pieces together in a way that is brand new because we aren't following the non, the very linear path that kind of the American dream that doesn't exist wants us to follow. Mm -hmm. I'd love for you to share a little bit about where you look to for solace, guidance and inspiration to continue on the queer nonlinear path of living and loving. Yeah. I think there's a few answers. I mean, we have, have our life together and so I look to you a lot to do the to make the life that we want to have um together um so in terms of our relationship I think that we kind of look to each other on that um I want to be an individual and I want you to be an individual and as an individual I want you to be fulfilled in your dreams and I want to be someone who is um like if we were um criminals escaping from prison like I want to be the person who's like holding your foot and helping you get over the fence to freedom (laughs) (laughs) um and I think that um that is the best and most uh appropriate job of any partner like I want to build you up to the point where you feel like you are the person that you are meant to be and you are putting things out into the world that are good and helping people and it's in the format that you want it to be in I think that you are an artist at heart um I think you have a lot of amazing things to say. And I think right now, wait, this is like turned into me, like giving an analysis of you. I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But I think right now you're toying with a lot of things. And I think you're like going through this metamorphosis of like, what do I want to do? And I think my job as a partner, as a queer partner, uh, um, and I would hope that anyone would feel this way about being a partner is to support you in doing that. Um, And in turn, I would hope that you would and do, and I know that you do support me in doing 
whatever sort of querying of life of nonlinear life that I want to do. I think as a doctor, it is difficult to think about getting off of the conveyor belt of being a doctor. I have faced this before. Um, my residency education was at a prestigious institution. No, no, not humble brag. Just like when you go to a good residency, people expect you to do like three things afterwards and that's it. And if you go to private practice, that is like looked down upon. Okay. You're supposed to stay in academics or go to a fellowship. And I remember at the end of residency, you know, I like didn't have a job <laughs> and I was like, everyone was like, what are you going to do? <laughs> like, yo, you're so good. Like, you're going to be such a failure if you don't get a job. Like, what are you going to do? And I was like, I'm going to leave this place and I'm not going to become like any of you because you're all miserable. And I was able, there was something in me again, like from my childhood, same little person in there that took a step back and looked at everyone and was like, no, I don't like you. <laughs> I don't want to be like you, like you are unhappy. And like, I, I was subject to people taking out their unhappiness on me for years in residency. And so like, yeah, maybe it was easy to see, but I think it's really, really hard to take that sidestep and get off that conveyor belt. So I did that once. Um, and I think that was the right decision for me. Um, and I'm in a place right now where I'm a doctor and I love the kind of doctor that I am. I love the work that I do. And since 2020, it has been really, really, really difficult to work in the medical field. I think mm. we know, we all know that because of COVID many, many people left medicine. Um, so working in that background and then also having 2021 happen, SBA going into effect, living in this part of the country where we absorbed many, many Texans in Oklahoma and now Kansas um, that needed abortions. It has been really, really, really unbelievably difficult to work in this environment. And I know it's so difficult for the staff that I work with and the nurses and the other doctors that I work with as well. So shout out to them for sticking with it. And so this moment in my life in the past three years of being a doctor is kind of forcing me to look at the conveyor belt that I'm on just by being um, a doctor. Um, and I think there might be another sidestep coming up for me in the next few years. Um, we've talked about that. And maybe queerness is just kind of evaluating the conveyor belt that you're on and having the courage to step off if you don't like it. And hopefully finding someone who will stick their hand out for you. <laughs> and, and catch me. <laughs> and boost your foot up and over the factory walls. <laughs> there you go. It's a prison. Yeah. Like, and then like, okay, what happens when you're not on any conveyor belt? Do you ever get to be sold and come out of the factory as a piece of bread? Like, no, but maybe it's okay. <laughs> you know, like, I think we, it is so easy as people to like, find ourselves just like going through life and doing what other people expect of us. And I'm guilty of that as just as much as anyone else. Um, and I am always having little brave Iman battle all of my self-doubt. The Iman that just came through a lot of stuff like in my childhood and a lot of terrible things um, and still is this was the same person. So I look a lot to my inner child, I guess, which is such a weird thing to say. Um, That's not a weird thing to say. But uh, yeah, I look a lot there. And then I have one mentor.
mentor in medicine, Mandy Gittler, who is a family medicine doctor who trained me to do abortions when I was a fourth year medical student. So about 10 years ago, um, she's the only person I've ever listened to in terms of medical, uh, advice about being a doctor. Um, so I always ask her her opinion of everything and listen to her. And she is just like, she's really like, she's not even in the factory anymore. She's just like, <laughs> she's Mandy out means, there. <laughs> Mandy means so much to the cool queers doing cool shit that this is not the first time her name is mentioned. <laughs> oh yeah, that's podcast. right. Oh yeah. Her daughter, Brittany <laughs> was on the podcast. Um, yeah. She's really formed all of us. She's like the mastermind of making people queer and being cool, I guess. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, her mentorship has been, her mentorship and her friendship has been absolutely invaluable to me. I owe her my life. I think that I would very well be in some fellowship I didn't want to do working in some academic job that I didn't want to be in if it weren't for her. So I am eternally thankful to her um, for that. And she's one of the people that told me like, go to your residency, get all of the knowledge and skills, and then you don't ever have to go back there. And that was really powerful and very true. So yeah, I, I think if you can find like some queer, some like little agitators that just kind of like put a little thorn in your side and are kind of like, but like, does it have to be that way? <laughs> Could you do something else? Um, that can be really powerful. And I think I've sort of looked to that and like, you are that for me and my inside baby Iman is that for me. And then Mandy is that for me. And you know, I'm sure I'm forgetting people that are also that for me, but I think people, I, I surround myself with people who are not people who are going to be judgmental about any old crazy idea that I have. I'm really looking to surround myself with people that are supportive of whatever, whatever I think is best for me in my life. And I give that back to my friends um, and my people. I don't claim to know what's best for anyone. And it all goes, it's, it's the same, it's the same, um, olive branch that I extend to the abortion patients. Like, I don't know what's best for me. I don't know what's best for you. You don't know what's best for me. Let's work together to help you fulfill the life that you want to live. And we'll call it a day, <laughs> you know, that's the thread. <laughs> I love that. So this next question might actually, you might be like, I just answered that, but I feel like it's slightly different. So you are someone who sits at the crux of many identities that are under attack in our country right now. You're someone who has known you were queer for much of your life. It seems like maybe since 1994 when you wanted Juliana Margulies to tuck you into bed. You're someone who has- Did I know? I don't know. <laughs> You're someone who has unfortunately experienced police violence. You're someone who has a name that leads people to exposing their internalized Islamophobia because they don't know how to pronounce it. You're someone whose gender presentation puts people in a transphobic stance, as we just heard you talk about with people being confused about your gender presentation. And yet you still manage to be this like big, bright, the biggest, brightest force. And that's something that every day I wake up and I'm just amazed and moved by you because of. So I'd love to hear you reflect a little bit on what brings you your life force. And maybe it is that little inner baby Iman that's like, keep fucking being the big version of me that I needed you to be my whole life. Or maybe it's something else like what keeps you going and what brings you determinable hope about the world that we live in, and the future that we're trying to build. 
I don't know where I got the foolish notion <laughs> that with enough hard work and dedication and commitment, there's almost nothing that I can't do. And I think I'm lucky. Like I was born into a, a, a pretty, I, I, I'm lucky and unlucky. I mean, I was born into an environment where I didn't want for anything material. Um, there was no like struggling to get food on the table or anything like that. So I'm like extremely, extremely lucky to have grown up in, in that circumstance. I was, I grew up in an emotionally poor environment and I wanted out of that. Like I didn't want to have to rely on that forever. And I wanted to be able to be, I think, to be honest, like I have been struggling with the hope part a lot lately. Um, the last like few years has really burned me out a lot. And I, I do think that it's more difficult to continue to exist in a world where like my personal identity and the identities of all the people that I take care of are constantly under attack. Um, that has been, uh, I will be honest, very, very hard for me. I always think of the, um, <laughs> that internet thing of like a frog riding a snail and it's like me living my one wild and dangerous life or whatever it says <laughs> and I feel like that frog like I am that frog I am gonna I'm I'm thirsty I'm gonna take any opportunity that I have to live my life to the fullest I will never be satisfied I um I want to be happy. I have a lot of mental health issues um, in my personal background and my family, um, but in my personal background that I've really been working with as an adult. And I am so voraciously committed to finding happiness and being happy. Um, I know that's really vague and not specific, but like that is my wish in life and the things that bring me happiness are things that um i want to continue to pursue um and i want to get to a place where i feel less hopeless like from a like the world is really fucked up perspective and like my job is really fucking hard perspective like my my ideal would be um to be able to do my job or a similar job um without feeling the heavy weight of the, of the world and the decisions that old white men are making for all of us that are not in line with what anyone wants. But that has been really hard recently, but I still feel like that frog on that snail, like I'm still trying to figure out what my one wild and dangerous life entails. And I've lived a lot of life already. I have been on a lot of adventures. I, I think that life has the ability to be really hopeful and really fun and exciting and new almost every day. I will, I will say like, I have been getting bogged down in a lot of the everyday stuff. It's It's been really hard for me. I'm really, really in a place where I, I do need to like sort of work on like my sidestep off of that conveyor belt, I think. And, and, and that's, that's okay. Right. Like, everything ebbs and flows. Like 
I can't always be on the snail. Sometimes I have to get off the snail to like go use the bathroom or something or like get a bite to eat. <laughs> and then I can just hop right back up there. You know, like the, the goal is to spend the most time on the snail as possible. Um, and that can't always be true. And especially with people with my own mental health things that can't always be true. And I think part of being happy is sort of accepting that. So that's kind of been my thoughts recently. There's, um, what is that? Sorry, this is sort of off topic. You can cut this out, but have you ever seen the movie Man on Wire? I have. Okay, he says something in that movie that is like, just like very, very good. What does he say? He's like, if you live your life on the tightrope. (laughs) (laughs) He's French, you know, if you live your life. If you live your life on the tightrope, oh gosh, I like. I think it's like so good. Hold on. We were just talking yesterday. Oh about oh oh, I found memories it. that, like, we remember them one way, and they're actually different. And I just imagined you googling for like nine hours trying to find a quote, and it's like it doesn't exist. exist. <laughs> <laughs> okay, he says. Life should be lived on the edge of life. You have to exercise rebellion, to refuse to tape yourself to rules, to refuse your own success, to refuse to repeat yourself, to see every day, every year, every idea as a true challenge. And then you are going to live your life on the tightrope. (laughs) So it was in reverse of what you thought. (laughs) Well, I, well, like in the trailer, in the trailer, they cut it. So he's saying like, and you're going to live your life on the tightrope. No, but it's a good quote. And it's a quote that I think captures exactly what you're saying right that there is an element of living in life where we have to center rebellion because we're pushing back against the linearity and the lie of linearity that the world tells us and so I feel like that inner instinct that you have that you like identify as your inner child or this like inner little baby Iman is that voice that's like pushing you to curve and to get back on the snail and to grab the fucking <laughs> reins and and the tightrope snail. Yes. <laughs> I know the tightrope and the snail are hard to go together because well the snail will always stick on the tightrope because it's slimy, right? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Anyways, all I'm trying to say is that I think this is a really beautiful close because this is exactly how I feel like you embody the way that you live and approach the decisions that you make in your life and the way that you show up to the commitments that you make, which is with full force and a lot of excitement and sometimes a lot of questions. And I really admire that about you. Um, Thank you, baby. I just love you so deeply and you've changed my life so profoundly. And I hope that I can continue to can continue to show up and change yours and and be Maybe. the cheerleader in the hot mini skirt and the pom-poms from but i'm a cheerleader that <laughs> like <laughs> that when, they're hang- when, they're, when they're hanging out the window eating donuts when she's going to the queer camp the anti-queer camp i'm thinking <laughs> of like the romantic cheer that natasha leone does at oh, the end yeah oh, that's really cute but that's what i want to be and I'll aspire to be on your snail frog journey. Okay, great. There's space for you. (laughs) 
Well, I really appreciate you coming on Cool Queers Doing Cool Shit. You've been my biggest cheerleader through making this whole project. And I really appreciate you sharing so many of your stories because uh, our stories are the the most important things we have. And I just feel so grateful that a lot of these that you've shared with me, we now get to share with more people. Yeah, I feel like the other episodes had much more substance. <laughs> and this one is like, just like me rambling about my childhood. So I hope that the viewers or listeners um, aren't, uh, we don't lose listeners from this episode. <laughs> No, it's perfect. It's exactly what it was supposed to be. <laughs> Snacks, barking, and all. <laughs> this is our family, it ends up. <laughs> yeah. She's bad. <laughs> so I keep telling everybody. <laughs> well, I love you. I love you too. I'll see you downstairs. <laughs> <laughs> okay, bye. Thanks so much for joining Iman and I for today's episode. It was so special to hear them reflect on what keeps them going as we've navigated so much internal and external change the last few years. If you want to support Iman's work, take a look at the show notes for links to donate to their clinic and to the Kansas Abortion Fund. I hope you've all been taking care, tuning into what you need, and turning down the noise or energies that make you feel small. I hope you're all finding a way to be that frog riding that snail. Speaking of which, It reminded me of a really dear Mary Oliver poem that I'll close with today called The Summer Day. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean. The one who has flung herself out of the grass. The one who is eating sugar out of my hand. Who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it that you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Okay, all you queers, take care, be well, and do something that makes you laugh today.